Good morning. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you that's here this morning. I pray that the Lord will, uh, will bless us as we look together at his word. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment that we have set aside to come before you and to hear from your word and to learn. Lord, we are here, we are here to do some work, Lord, and to engage our minds and, and, our, and our hearts and to, be, to have them prepared to serve you. Lord, we are also here uh, to find rest, Lord. And as we look into your word this morning, I, I pray you would help us to understand the, the balance that there is there between work and rest. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So if you would uh, open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 127. We're going to start there in Psalm 127. And if you may remember, a few weeks ago I gave a sermon on that same passage. And so I have some more thoughts to share with you on that. And also, if you can, uh, yeah, so Psalm 127 is on page 749 in your pew Bible, if you're looking for that. And also, if you can, we're going to spend some time in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 22, as well as chapter 28 and 29, and that starts at page 513. So if you want to kind of get a jump on me and, and have your thumb in there, you can do that too. So page 749, Psalm 127, and page 513 is 1 Chronicles 22, and it'll be a few minutes before we get there. So we'll start with Psalm 127, where the psalmist writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives to his beloved, even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The, the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, they will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So this morning we're going to look uh, mostly at the first half of Psalm 127. And we're going to talk about sleep. Sleep. That's not an imperative, not a command. I mean, I'm not actually asking you or telling you to go to sleep. I want to talk to you about sleep, but I don't want you to actually fall asleep. I want you to try to stay awake, and I'll do my best to help you to do that. But sleep. <clears throat> sleep is a gift from God. Verse 22 of the psalm we just read. In the NASB, it says, He gives to his beloved even in his sleep. But those words, even in his, they're not in the original. If you look at the ESV, there's a truer uh, literal translation of the Hebrew, which simply says, He gives to his beloved sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep. Now, at the physiological level, sleep is an amazing part of God's design of the human body. We need the rest that sleep provides for our bodies. While we sleep, our respiration and heart rates slow, our blood pressure drops, our hearts and the muscles that we use to breathe have time to take a break. Meanwhile, there are growth hormones that are released into our bloodstream, and those work to repair, repair the daily damage that occurs in our muscles and our joints. 
our nervous and our immune systems are rejuvenated as well. In fact, the fluid in our brains is circulated more rapidly so that it flushes out uh, waste products that are in our brains. And our brains are literally cleaned out while we sleep. Our brains take advantage of this quiet too. There's a period of uh, partial sensory deprivation, if you will. And our brains take advantage of that to process thoughts, to organize and solidify memories and knowledge. So physiological sleep is, is, is a necessity. Physiologically, sleep is a necessity. It's, our cent it's central to our physical and to our mental well-being. But the scriptures speak of a spiritual rest, a spiritual sleep that goes beyond physical sleep. This morning, I want to think about this, this spiritual rest, this spiritual sleep that God gives us. And by spiritual sleep, I mean an abiding peace of mind, a calmness of spirit, a rest of the soul that only God can give. It's something that's available day by day, as well as for all eternity. And it is a central part of life lived in fellowship with the spirit of the living God. Sleep is also central to Psalm 127. Actually, quite literally, the word sleep is pretty much right in the middle of the psalm. I was counting words in the NASB, and there are 53 words that occur before sleep and 56 words that happen after it. So it's about right in the middle. The first half of the psalm, those first 53 words, are building up to the, the climax. So if you're following along in your outline, the climax, which is sleep. The climax is sleep. And the second half of the psalm is, is what I might call the, the denouement, the resolution or the, re, the revelation of what flows out of that climax. So the second half of the psalm describes how the benefits of what actually happens while we sleep work themselves out in our lives. So in that first half of the psalm, I see God as the true builder and the source of all things, and us as his co-laborers, his collaborators, working alongside him. In the second half of the psalm, I see God again as the true builder and source of all things, and of us as those who celebrate what he has done, the children that he has given. And I see sleep taking central stage. In the first half, the psalm points us to the rest that, uh, that we find as we work together with God. And in the second half, the psalm provides us a picture of life, a life of celebration lived in that rest. To start to get this into our heads this morning, I want you to picture this psalm as if it were a mountain. The mountain is a massive, uplifting rock, and the mountain has a name. It's called the work of God, or you can call the mountain the grace of God, if you like that better. The mountain represents the foundational truth that's really the, the theme of this psalm, which is that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And I want to be sure to say that with an emphasis on the Lord builds. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. This is the preeminent truth of Psalm 127, that there's nothing we can do apart from God being at work in us and through us that can pre prepare us to be part of his holy house, part of his eternal kingdom, part of his heaven. It's God's work, God's grace that's the foundation. And everything else is founded upon it. That was the main theme of the sermon that I gave a few weeks ago. This morning, I want to take a closer look at what's going on at the top of this mountain. You see, up at the top of the mountain of God's work, of God's grace, there's a city. A city on a hill, if you will. And this city has a name, just like the mountain has a name. The city is called Sleep. And it rests atop the massive bulk of the mountain of God's grace. This morning, I want to visit this town atop the mountain of God's grace. We're going to visit sleep, hopefully not fall asleep. 
and we're going to observe her citizens, and we're going to see what's going on up here in the city of sleep. And what we notice from Psalm 127 is that here in the city called sleep, people are not always asleep. In fact, they are regularly engaged in activity. There are two activities in particular. These two activities in your outline there are collaboration and celebration. Collaboration and celebration. This morning, I just have time to focus on the first activity, collaboration. Perhaps I'll have opportunity at some point in the future to touch upon celebration because that's important too. But there's enough for us to learn about collaboration to keep us busy for today. And after all, I do want to make sure you get home in time to get some sleep. So collaboration, uh, point, point two on the outline there. We are God's fellow workers. So welcome to the mountain of God's grace and to the city called sleep. The first thing that you notice up here is that everyone is busy, busy in collaboration. And by collaboration, I mean working together with or working alongside. The citizens of sleep work alongside God. They are God's fellow workers. In the New Testament, the idea that we are God's fellow workers, that we work with God and God works with us, is expressed by the word synergos, which, from which we get the word synergy. People living atop the mountain of God's grace know that they have a responsibility to work together with God. We work with him to build our own little spiritual houses to make them fit to be a part of God's grand eternal spiritual house. We also work with him to make disciples of all the nations, to play a part in adding others to, to, the, to God's spiritual house. In fact, where the word synergos is used, it's, it occurs in Mark 16 and 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Thessalonians 3, there it specifically refers to evangelization and discipleship to kingdom building. But what exactly does this collaboration look like, and how is it tied to sleep? Well, I want to start out first by being clear what I am not saying. Remember that the big picture of Psalm 127 is that apart from God, we can do nothing. So when I say that we need to work alongside God, I am not saying that we are equal contributors with God to our spiritual development. I am not saying that God does his part, we do our part, and together we make something beautiful that could not have been made otherwise. I am not saying that God is looking for partners to join his team, as it were, to accomplish something that he, he could not accomplish on his own. And I am not saying that he needs us somehow to supply some missing piece or necessary skill or lacking resource to accomplish his purposes. The message of Psalm 127 is quite the opposite. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. He gives to his beloved. It is, as I said in my previous sermon, exactly that our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification are all about God. And as we noted uh, back there a few weeks ago, Ephesians 2 states it plainly, that God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. So it's God's love, God's mercy, God's grace that saves us. God makes us alive, and as Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, God raises us up, God seats us in the heavenlies, God saves us so he can put us on display as example, examples of the riches of his grace for the ages to come. So we see it's God, 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 God at work, not us. We are his workmanship, Paul says. And our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification are all in him, by him, and ultimately for him, for his glory. 
So he doesn't need us. We need him. We need, we need him to save us like dead seeds need the rains and the sun so they can sprout to life. We need him to sanctify us like dirty hands need soap and water to get clean. We need him to glorify us like light bulbs need electricity to make light. And for us to think any less of God or any more of ourselves is nothing less than that original sin of pride, saying that we can somehow make ourselves like God, that we can ascend to heaven by our own strength, even as Satan did. And from up here on the mountaintop uh, that we've been talking about, the mountaintop of God's grace, we can see there's a town down in the valley below. It's a town called Pride. The sign on the road into Pride says, Welcome to Pride. We're number one. Except you notice somebody's crossed out the we're and written I'm over it. While they were at it, they might as well have crossed out the welcome part too. The sign would be more accurate if it just read pride, I'm number one. This town ain't big enough for the two of us. But that's not where we live. We don't live down in the valley of pride. We live atop the mountain of God's grace in the city of sleep. And so we are ever conscious and hope that we are wholly dependent on God. But that doesn't mean by any stretch that we can just grab a bag of chips, kick back in the lazy boy, turn on the TV, and tune out everything else and wait for the end to come. We still bear responsibility to work, and the author of Psalm 127 knows that. In other words, I'm also not saying, and the psalmist is not saying, quote, let go and let God. We are not called out as holy to the Lord to disengage and to live a carefree or struggle-free life. You see, there's another valley down in the mountain, down the mountainside. His name is Slothfulness. The sign on the road to Slothfulness says, Slow down. Take your time. Why do today what you can put off till tomorrow? That sign's in pretty bad shape, actually, and it looks like nobody's bothered to maintain it. Funny thing about this sign, it wouldn't even be there if someone from the next valley over, a place called Workaholism, as I recall, hadn't run over to put it up. But when God calls us, he calls us out of slothfulness, too. And we can see that in Psalm 127. The psalmist takes it for granted that we are responsible to work alongside God. It's easy for us just to hop and skip and jump over it. What does it say? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Yes, the Lord builds, but someone else is laboring too. That almost goes without saying. I mean, during, during our roughly 80 years, if we are blessed, plus or minus on this planet, we have work to do. We have a house, a spiritual house to build. We have good works that God has prepared for us to do. Now, the builders who live up in, in the city of sleep, they know these things. So they are not lazy builders. And they're also not prideful builders. They recognize their utter dependence upon God to do the building, while at the same time, they themselves are involved in the building. They are laboring. And by the way, I ought to mention, in case you were meant wondering, that the watchmen in sleep don't sleep on the job just because they know God is guarding the city. They know that unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. And that, that's not an invitation to take a nap. I'm sure that whether it was David or Solomon who wrote these lines, as kings, they wanted their watchmen to keep alert, to keep awake. So even though God does not need us to achieve his purposes, and so he leaves no room for pride, he has still called us to be co-laborers. Even though God is building our house, 
We are called not to slothfulness, but to service of the king. We are called to collaborate. And that's my first main point this morning. We are called to collaborate with God. Now, I just alluded to the fact that there's some uncertainty regarding who authored Psalm 127. The title of my Bible in the NASB says, A Song of Ascents of Solomon. But the Hebrew can also literally be translated, A Song of Ascents for Solomon. And as I read the scriptures uh, over the past few weeks, Something, I noticed something argues strongly for David's authorship, and that's the accounts of the preparations that David made for the building of the temple and for Solomon's taking of the throne. These made it obvious to me that, that David had a strong desire for all the best for Solomon, his son. He had a desire that, that, um, for all the best for Solomon in ruling over the nation and in building God's temple. He wanted Solomon to follow and obey the Lord with his whole heart, and to have success in all things. And he counseled Solomon carefully and at length. And we can see that in, in at least three places in Scripture, in 1 Kings uh, 2 and 1 Chronicles 22 that we're going to look at today and, and 1 Chronicles 28 and following as well. And David prayed for Solomon. He prayed that the Lord would keep him faithful to the Lord and give him success in constructing the temple. And as I read Psalm 127, I got the sense that Psalm 127 is David, the father, giving advice to Solomon, his son, who has huge tasks before him. As I mentioned, to assume the throne of God's chosen nation, this throne that would be promised to last forever, and to build the first temple to the one true God. And I can almost hear David dedicating the psalm to Solomon in the face of these daunting tasks to remind him that he needs to depend upon the Lord and rest in the Lord and celebrate the blessings of the Lord, because unless the Lord builds the house, his labor would be in vain. There's even possibly a veiled reference to Solomon in the text. You see, when uh, Solomon was born, his mother gave him the name Solomon, which is derived from that rich Hebrew word shalom, which means peace or rest. But interestingly enough, um, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to give Solomon a second name. That name was Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. And we read about that in 2 Samuel 12. So when the psalm says in verse 2 that the Lord gives to his beloved sleep, that the root for that word for beloved, uh, I'll mispronounce it, Yadid, is common with the root for the name Jedidiah, which is Yedidiah, which means beloved of, of Yah, which is the proper name for God. So there's that common root that Yadid or Yedidiah <clears throat> And though the word sleep is different in Hebrew than the word for rest, the word uh, which is uh, for Solomon's name, there's still a connection there with that name that Bathsheba gave him as well. So that's that second verse, if you can imagine, it's as if David's speaking to Solomon, reminding him that the Lord loves him. The Lord gives to his beloved sleep. Uh, the Lord gives to Jedidiah, Solomon, and that the, so that the Lord will give Solomon rest. So I can hear David saying as I read this psalm, don't worry, Solomon. God will build your house. God will guard your nation and your city. God will bless you with children. Rest in the Lord. Sleep at night, and you will be amazed at what the Lord will do. But David is not telling Solomon he can just take it easy. This message of calm and comfort in the face of a daunting, and undertake, uh, daunting undertaking 
comes in the context of collaboration. And that comes through loud and clear when we consider what David did in preparation for Solomon's undertaking to build the temple and what he told Solomon before making him king of Israel. So if you can flip now in your, uh, in your Bibles over to 1 Chronicles 22. Here we find David charging Solomon with the task of building the temple. Uh, his charge to Solomon starts there in verse 6, and it runs through verse 16. But let's look first at the end of, the, of David's charge there in verse 16. David says to Solomon, Arise and work. That's all I want to say. Arise and work. In other words, get up and get busy. If I can expand upon that a bit, what I hear David saying is, yes, the Lord will build your house. Yes, the Lord will build his house. And yes, it will be a miracle, a thing of significance, something that will bring God glory and in which God's glory will dwell. But you, Solomon, you need to organize and direct and oversee. You need to make every effort to see this project accomplished. Get up and get busy. Arise and work. Starting now back in 1 Chronicles 22.6, we read that, that he, David, called his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And as we consider what David told Solomon when he charged him with this work, we see that David laid out a pattern for Solomon to follow. I just want to talk about two parts of this pattern that jumped out at me. First of all, that collaboration involves thoughtful preparation. And second of all, that collaboration involves self-sacrificial obedience. Collaboration involves thoughtful preparation and collaboration involves self-sacrificial obedience. So first of all, we notice that the building of God's house involved thoughtful, advanced preparation. In 1 Chronicles 22.7, David says, "I, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. Now, we don't know the exact timing of when this intent came to his mind, but from what David says here, We know that when David expressed his intent to build a temple, God then told him, it's in verse 9 of 1 Chronicles 22, Behold, a son will be born to you. And in verse 10, that he shall build a house for my name. So we know that David had intended to build the temple for at least all of Solomon's life up to this point. And that we don't find in Scripture how old Solomon was when he took the throne. He was probably about 20 or 30 years old. So David's desire to build a temple had occupied his heart and his mind for some time, 20 to 30 years, before he charged Solomon with this task. And what did David do? He didn't just sit on his thumbs for 20 or 30 years. He started making plans. He started laying away materials and getting workers and craftsmen lined up to do the work. Here in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 14, David enumerates all the materials that he laid up. He says, Now behold, with great pains I have prepared for the house of the Lord. A hundred thousand talents, that's approximately 3,800 tons of gold. A million talents, that's about 38,000 tons of silver. And bronze and iron beyond weight. They are in great, they're great in quantity. Also timber and stone I have prepared. And he goes on to tell of how he's assembled in verse 15. Many workmen, stonecutters and masons of stone, and carpenters, and all men who are skillful in every kind of work. We also find out that he recruited and inspired officials and leaders of the tribes of Israel. Later in 1 Chronicles 28 and 29, David tells Solomon that the officials will be at his command, and he assembles the leaders of the tribes, and he charges and challenges them to come alongside Solomon and help him to make the project a success. 
And if you flip over a couple pages to 1 Chronicles 28.11, you can see where David gives the plans over to Solomon. They are, are exhaustive. It says, beginning in verse 11, Then David gave to his son Solomon the plan of the porch, its buildings, its storehouses, its upper rooms, its inner rooms, the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the, for the courts and the house of the Lord, and for all the surrounding rooms, for the storehouses of the house of God, and for the storehouses of the dedicated things, also for the divisions of the priests and the Levites, and for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord, and for all the utensils of the service in the house of the Lord. And it goes on in detail to say how David had plans for the articles in the temple, for the weights of gold and the weights of silver to be used in the construction of the lampstands and the table of showbread and the altar of incense and the cherubim to cover the ark and even the forks and the basins and the pitchers and the bowls. Everything was spelled out in great detail for Solomon. The thing that catches my attention here is that David took pains to lay careful plans and, and preparations. And he did this despite knowing that when he had first expressed his desire and intent to build a temple, that the Lord had turned the tables on him and promised him, David, in, in 2 Samuel 7, that he, God, would build David a house and that he would raise up his descendant and establish his kingdom forever. Even knowing this, David did not just sit around and wait. He thought about what was needed and who was needed. He drew up blueprints. He took a, a leadership role. He made plans and he inspired people uh, around him to get on board. He inspired people to pitch in, to help out. Even though he knew that he would not live to see this work completed, even to see it begin, he didn't sit around and wait. He took action and he laid the groundwork. I would be remiss to point out this juncture that it's important to notice too, um, where David's plans came from. David tells us in 1 Chronicles 28, 19, all this, all these plans, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. So what we have here is David desiring in his heart to serve the Lord, to build the Lord a house, and to see God's name magnified. And though he knows that full well that the Lord has told him, no, this you cannot do, David in humility continues with the Lord in such close communication that the Lord implants upon his heart the details of, his, of these plans. And David hears and heeds the word of the Lord. He doesn't jump out ahead of the Lord and build a temple anyway, but he pays close attention to all the details of the Lord's plans, and he writes them down and passes them along to Solomon, and he sets the wheels in motion to prepare the way to see God's plans fulfilled. And when I think of these things, I get this image of David, the man after God's own heart, so desirous of serving and glorifying the Lord, walking hand in hand with God, his mind focused keenly on how can I plan, how can I strategize, how can I facilitate, how can I participate in the glorification of the Lord here on earth? He knew he would not see the final fulfillment of his plans, but that did not matter because he knew that God had promised to establish the throne of his son and that his son would build God's house. We get some insight into David's heart in this in, in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, there in verse 18, David's response to God is, Who am I, O Lord God, and who is my house that you have brought me this far? He says, You are great. O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you. So there's no pride here. There's only a humble heart that seeks to see God magnified. There's no slothfulness either, but a man who's been given a vision of the future and who takes every action according to God's will to do what he can under God's inspiration to bring that vision to fruition. 
So collaborating with God involves thoughtful, advanced preparation. Collaboration with God also involves self-sacrificial obedience. This is the second part of the pattern that David set for Solomon, that building God's temple would involve self-sacrificial obedience. If you can back up a few, few paragraphs back into the previous chapter before 1 Chronicles 22 up to 1 Chronicles 21, we find there the account of, of David's purchase of the land upon which the temple was to be built. And here we see that it cost David something to build the temple. And David's remarks at the time are, are instructive. In 1 Chronicles 21:18, we read that the angel of the Lord commanded that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. This command came to David in response to the seeking of, for his seeking forgiveness for having previously disobeyed God uh, in pride and deciding against the Lord's desire to take a census of Israel. And as a result of, of David's sin, the people were suffering a plague. But God was providing a way out, and he commanded that David build an altar. So David obeyed the Lord, went up to the threshing floor of Ornan, and the angel that had made this announcement uh, went with him. And as David approached, Ornan sees the angel, and he sees David. And Ornan is moved at the sight of the angel and of the king approaching him. And Ornan falls at David's feet. And in verse 22, uh, 1 Chronicles 21, David says, Give me the sight of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. For the full price you shall give it to me, that the plague may be restrained from my people. But Ornan uh, offers him the land for free. He says, take it for yourself, in verse 23. And let the Lord the king do what is good in his sight. See, I will give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges for wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I will give it all. But David will not accept this gift. And it's very interesting what he says there in verse 24. No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. David understood that he had sinned against the Lord. David understood that he needed to repent and to return to the Lord and obey his command to build an altar. But David was not going to take the easy way out. He was not going to shirk his responsibility for his sin or his repenting of that sin. And so he says, I will not offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. David understood the principle of self-sacrifice in obedience. Reconciliation would not be accomplished. True worship would not happen just because an offering had been offered, just because an outward sign had been performed. Obedience to the Lord required something deeper It required taking of responsibility as taking of ownership, a sacrifice of his self, of his pride. We see David repeating this practice of self-sacrifice near the end of his life and at the end of his preparations for the temple uh, construction, also in 1 Chronicles 29. And in verse 2 of 1 Chronicles 29, we find that David has gone above and beyond setting aside the nation's wealth of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone, as we already noted. He's also tapped into his personal wealth, too. Uh, We see that in his address to the nation at Solomon's coronation. He says, Now with all my ability I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, uh, and so on. And in verse 3, he continues, Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver I give to to the house of God, over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple. And he goes on to list the weight 
of gold, some 100 tons, and silver, some 260 tons, that he is donating out of his personal wealth. So this project is costing him personally. Beyond that, he leads by his example of self-sacrifice because we see him issuing a challenge to the leaders of Israel. In verse 5 of 1 Chronicles 29, after saying, Hear what I have given above and beyond out of my delight in the Lord, he asks the people, Who then is willing to consecrate himself, literally to fill his hand this day to the Lord? Who else, David asks, is willing to dig deep in their pockets, fill their hand, and give freely from their own possessions to the work of God? So David gave of his own possessions over and above, and he encouraged those around him to follow his example. And the people did. They made their offering willingly to the Lord with a whole heart, it says in 1 Chronicles 29.9. And David rejoiced greatly when he saw it. Throughout Scripture, we see the principle that coming to the Lord and following him requires sacrifice. <clears throat> Abel gave of the firstlings of his flock. Abraham gave his one and only son. There came a time when, when the Lord required everything of a man named Job, everything but his life. We read of Hannah giving her long-awaited-for son Samuel to the Lord. We know the Israelites were instructed to follow a detailed plan of sacrificing to God from their flocks and their crops. Uh, Paul made a parallel between his life of missionary service to God and the drink offering, it, that his whole life of service to God was just a quart of wine poured out and consumed on the altar over an offering of fire. And all these are types or echoes, of course, of Jesus, who in obedience to the Father humbled himself to become that ultimate offering and all-sufficient sacrifice when he died on the cross. And we are called to follow Jesus' example. Jesus himself said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When we obey the Lord, we are called to set aside our own desires, our own plans, our own dreams, and to seek to work for his desires, to see his plans accomplished according to his design. Psalm 37, 4 says that, that God will give us the desires of our hearts, a very familiar verse. But we so often skip so easily over what it says right before that. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the, the desires of your heart. The first step there is that paradigm shift. Take delight in the Lord, not in myself. Then once my desires are aligned with his, once I am focused on glorifying his name, then the Lord will give me the desires of my heart because my desires are his desires. You may also be familiar with the prophets, uh, prophet Samuel's famous first line, to obey is better than sacrifice. He said that in confronting King Saul who had disobeyed God's command to destroy all the herds of the Amalekites in, in a battle. And Saul had tried to cover up his disobedience by saying that he saved the best of the sheep and the oxen to be offered as sacrifice. When Samuel said to obey is, is better than sacrifice, he's not saying that God did not require sacrifice, but rather that it was the art, attitude of the heart in giving of the sacrifice that was key. In that passage, 1 Samuel 15, Samuel goes on to say that insubordination is as idolatry. In other words, to disobey God is to obey yourself, to put yourself, your desires, your plans ahead of God's, uh, God's plans and God's desires and ahead of God himself. 
So it's important to remember here that it's, it's not the outward form of sacrifice that God is looking for, not the giving away of something as if God could be, could be bought, but that the Lord requires the bending of our knee to him, the yielding of our heart and our mind to God. And these things necessarily accompany true obedience to the Lord. And this is manifested by us taking delight in the Lord and offering willingly to him with our whole heart. So God's, uh, building God's temple involves self-sacrifice, and building our spiritual house is going to require self-sacrifice as well. And building God's church here on earth is going to require self-sacrifice. And self-sacrifice means that we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So, the people up here on the mountain of God's grace in the city of sleep, they know all about collaboration, about self-sacrifice, and about advanced planning, thoughtful advanced planning. But all this sure sounds like an awful lot of work. In fact, this city called Sleep is a regular construction zone. And we might, you might be starting to wonder, does anyone really get any rest here? I mean, how can you possibly get a good night's sleep in a construction zone? I think answering this question is exactly why David wrote this psalm and, and gave it to Solomon. David knew that Solomon was faced with what could easily be seen as an overwhelming task. He would be in charge of a project that no one had ever undertaken before, to build the temple of the one true and living God. At the same time, he was going to be stepping up as king of God's chosen people. And on top of that, he knew that David, his father, would, be, would soon die and leave Solomon to take charge of this nation and this project all on his own. My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, says David in 1 Chronicles 29.1. He is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Can you imagine the challenges that Solomon faced? Can you imagine the expectations that were on him, placed upon him? the anticipation of a nation waiting to see what he would do, what kind of pressure. Enter the message of Psalm 127. David saying, hey, Solomon, don't stress out. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For God gives to his beloved sleep. Yes, Solomon, I'm talking to you. You are Jedediah, beloved of the Lord, and he has promised to build your house to build your kingdom into something that will last forever. And you are also Solomon. Your name means peaceful. And God has promised that you will be a man of peace and rest because he will give you rest from all your enemies on every side. So yes, Solomon, you have a job to do, a huge job. And yes, you're going to have to work. You have to plan and you have to sacrifice. But you also have to rest. And you can rest in the Lord because the Lord your God will give you that rest. David gives Solomon at least three reasons to be confident in the Lord's promise. So confident that he would be able to get a good night's sleep in the construction zone that would be his life. And these three reasons, very quickly, are God's presence, God's provision, and God's power. If you're following along in your outline. God's presence, God's provision, and God's power. The first reason that David gave to Solomon that he could sleep was the fact of God's presence. First Chronicles 28, 20, David says something very familiar. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear, 
nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. The Lord is with you. God is with you. You know, God has repeated that promise to his people over and over in Scripture. In Deuteronomy 31, God says to, uh, to Joshua through Moses, The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Sounds familiar, right? Joshua 1.5, God directly to Joshua, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And Hebrews 13.5, the writer of Hebrews says to the persecuted church, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus, whose very name, Emmanuel, means God with us, he himself said to go make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We often say it so glibly, God be with you. But think about it. What an amazing fact that God is with us. We are his temple. He has taken up residence in us. He is in our hearts, in our minds. And he is our helper. He comforts, he restores, he teaches, he reminds, he reassures. He gives us joy, he gives us peace. The presence of God is reason enough for us. It's comfort enough for us. Is reassurance enough for us that as we labor alongside him, we can get that good night's sleep. The second reason that David gave to Solomon is found right, right there in Psalm 127, verse 2. Here we are reminded of God's provision. And there's something very interesting uh, about the wording here that brings to mind two contrasting Old Testament passages. First, the psalm tells us that it is vain to eat bread of painful labors. Or more literally, it is vain to eat the bread of toils. The bread of toils, that word toil, it connects us back to the fall, the fall of Adam and Eve. If you remember what God said to Adam about eating, um, as he enumerated the consequences of Adam's sin, in Genesis 3.17, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Now, before the fall, and before Adam sinned, God had provided food for, for man in the form of fruit from trees. All Adam and Eve had to do was look up, open their hands, and, and receive nourishment from the Lord. They still had to do a little bit of work. And we know the scriptures tell us that God placed Adam uh, in his special garden there to cultivate it and to keep it. But the work that they did was good. Everything was very good. And the food was plentiful. God said, of any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, with the exception of just one. And so there's a picture of harmony, man working in harmony with God, caring for God's garden as God provides for man's needs. But sin changed all that. And man was condemned to eat the bread of toils. But Psalm 127 also reminds us of another Old Testament passage. It says he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Can you recall a time that God gave to his beloved, his people, in their sleep? As they crossed the wilderness out of Egypt, remember what they ate? They ate manna, this flake-like substance, and when did it come? 
came in the morning. In the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. They gathered it by morning, uh, morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. So God provided for his beloved in their sleep. Think of how foolish it would be, how vain for the people as they traveled across the wilderness to try to cultivate the ground, to raise crops and, and eat the bread of toil. All they had to do was go to bed, get a good night's rest, and in the morning, each and every morning, they saw the glory of the Lord and received of the Lord's provision. Had they spurned the Lord's provision, had they tried to take matters into their own hands and labored, as it were, to eat by the sweat of their brow, they would have never been able to, to uh, traverse the wilderness and reach the promised land. I think David was telling Solomon here that, yes, uh, building the temple to bring glory to the name of the Lord would be like crossing the wilderness to reach the promised land. It wasn't going to be a cakewalk. It was going to require labor. But because God was going to provide for his needs, because God was going to build his house, Solomon should rest in the Lord. Solomon should get a good night's sleep. And every morning he should wake up refreshed and see the glory of the Lord as the Lord built his house. He would still have to go out and collect, as it were, the manna delivered from the Lord's hand. He still had to do some work. He still had to labor. But he could rest because he could place his trust in the Lord's provision. And I think the Lord is telling us that, that though we are traveling through the wilderness of this life, and though it's difficult, and though we are responsible to labor in the building of our houses, and, the, and in the building of God's house, his church, we need to constantly keep in mind, in our minds and in our hearts, and on our tongues, a wonder and a thanksgiving for that true bread of heaven, the Lord Jesus, who the Father provided for us while we slept, while we were yet sinners, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And all we have to do is receive that free gift of his grace. Yes, we need to pursue the spiritual disciplines. Yes, we need to plan in advance for our spiritual growth. Yes, we need to sacrifice ourselves to follow him. But there is now a new and a truer and a deeper sleep, if you will, a peaceful rest that we can have now and forever because God has, in Christ, done all that is required to provide a way for us through this wilderness and out of this fallen world and into his everlasting promised land. So we can sleep soundly in the construction zones of our lives because of God's presence and because of God's provision. But there's one more thing. There's God's power. Listen to what David says starting in 1 Chronicles 29.10 in the prayer that he offers after charging Solomon to build a temple and after receiving the offerings of construction, construction materials from the people. This is what David prays. Blessed are you, O Lord God, our, uh, <clears throat> sorry. Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Who is this God who is present with you, Solomon? I can hear David saying. Who is this God who provides for you? He is the great and powerful, the glorious and victorious, the one who rules over everything in the heavens and everything on the earth. Everything comes from him. He owns everything. He's in control of everything. 
and he has the power to energize everyone for the work that he has set before them to do. So Solomon, when you're in the midst of building his temple, when you need wisdom and strength to rule over his people, this is the God who is with you. This is the God who provides for you. He's able to be with you no matter where you are or what you're doing. After all, this is his creation, and he is actively ruling over it, and he knows everything that's going on right now, even down to the intentions of your heart. Of course he's able to be with you, as he has promised. He has that power to be everywhere and know everything. Is he able to provide for you what you need? Yes, of course he, do, he is. This is his creation. He made it all, and nothing can stop him from fulfilling his promises. Nothing can stop him from providing what he has said he would provide. He has that power to provide for the needs of his beloved, even in their sleep. So rest, Solomon. Work, yes, but remember that this is the God who is with you, who provides for you, whose power is at work in you and through you to accomplish his plans and his desires. And in this, you can rest. You can sleep in this construction zone because it is the Lord's construction zone. And he is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory. To my final point now, a little bit more application. I've already touched on applications, but a little bit more. Um, Point number four there, it says application, and to fill in that last blank, it's balance, finding the balance. You know, when we first moved to Long Island, we needed to find a house. So I I went house hunting, and that meant visiting lots of people's homes. I saw all kinds of homes. Some were all but abandoned, you know, the real fixer-up handyman specials. One look at these places, and it was obvious No one had invested the time, money, or effort to keep them in good condition. And in my mind, I imagined the owners to be a family in some sort of distress. Either they were unable to invest in their house because they had lost a job or or some major health issue had had beset them, or maybe they were unwilling to invest in their house because they were in in bondage to depression or apathy or, or some addictive behavior and the associated fallout. Usually the owners of these places were not at home when the real estate agent brought me there. Then on the other end of the spectrum, there were the so-called mint condition houses. These places were immaculate showcases that should have been on the cover of Better Homes and Gardens magazine. These places were dressed to the nines. The driveways opened up with these Belgian block aprons. The sodded grass was flawless. The bushes weren't just trimmed, they were coiffed. The moldings were all perfectly mitered and stained. The kitchens were stainless steel and granite countertop palaces. The floors were clean enough to eat off of. And something left left an impression on me was in one place where the carpet was running down the stairs, it was held in place on each step by these decorative brass bars. Everything was just so. It was natural for me to imagine the owners of these places as as hardworking people. Either they were skilled do-it-yourselfers or they earned enough to be able to afford to pay someone else to beautify their home. Either way, it was clear that they purposed in their hearts to invest their time, effort, and money in building up their house. Often the owners of these houses would meet us at the door and, and be more than happy to show us around and highlight the fine features of their delightful domiciles. And maybe sometimes they were a little too happy, perhaps a little bit too prideful in showing us around. Now, the moral is not to inspire you this afternoon to, to go to Home Depot or Lowe's and get to work. But I want us to think for a minute 
about how we live our spiritual lives. If you're a Christian this morning, God's plan for you is to, is to build up your spiritual house that it's, so that it's fit to be part of his holy temple and fit to be part of his eternal heavenly house. Some of us this morning need to hear the message that Jesus gave to the lawyer in Luke 10, the passage that we read this morning. We're like the owners of those, those fixer-uppers that have, been, that have given up trying, or maybe we just don't see the need anymore, and our houses are showing some wear. We need to be told, as the lawyer was, do this and live. Be that good Samaritan. Don't be lazy. God doesn't want you back down there in the, in the valley of slothfulness or worse, in the valley of apathy. He wants you up in the city of sleep, resting in him, yes, but working alongside him, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Some of us, on the other hand, need to hear the message that Jesus gave to Martha in Luke 10. We're like the owners of those mint-conditioned houses. Our house looks really nice, but we're distracted by all our preparations. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's fear of what other people think. Maybe it's legalism. In any case, it all amounts to idolatry. We are putting something else in place of God. Maybe it's our very own image that we're putting there. The message for us this morning is only one thing is necessary. Sit at Jesus' feet in worship and adoration. Listen to him. Abide in him. Rest in him and in, in what he has done for you. Rest in his presence and his provision and in his power. Receive his peace. Sleep. For most of us, I expect there are times when we need to hear both of these messages. We need to live in that balance between collaboration and sleep. My prayer is this morning that God will, buy, will enable us both to celebrate, uh, sorry, to collaborate with him with all of our strength, while at the same time we choose that good part, the part that Mary chose as her first priority, not to run frantically around trying to please God, but to sit at his feet, abide with him, trusting in him, making his desires our, our desires, so that in his presence, his provision, and his power, he will accomplish his purposes in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the beauty of it, how it, it folds back on itself, and we can see things in the Old Testament that reflect the New Testament and, and the New Testament reflecting the Old Testament. Lord, we thank you for your truth that, that endures forever and, and just teaches us how we ought to live, Lord. We thank you most of all that Jesus has done what we could not do in dying on the cross for us and that we can rest in that. Lord, I pray that you would by your presence, and by your provision, and by your power, enable us to collaborate with you, to plan ahead for our spiritual development, to seek your kingdom and your righteousness, and to sacrifice ourselves in your service, even as Jesus sacrificed himself out of obedience to the Father. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.